0: Today's sponsor is Backbox. Backbox is a multi-vendor network automation platform that lets you automate every device on the network through a single console. It supports network and security devices from 180 different vendors. For example, with Backbox, you can execute an OS upgrade across Cisco, Checkpoint, and Palo Alto firewalls with a single click. Get an eval copy and see for yourself at backbox.com slash packet pushers.
1: Welcome to Heavy Strategies, where we much prefer unanswered questions to unquestioned answers, because the world is a lot more fun with unanswered questions. Greg and I today are going to be talking about one of your favorite topics, AI.
2: So we've seen all of the hype about ChatGPT lately. Further back, we've seen AI, let's just say further back is about the last two or three years, we've seen various hypes. And the current ChatGPT that is out is version three from memory. And I think 3.5
1: is coming out, but yeah. Yeah. Close yeah
2: so, you know, functionally, it's been around for a while, but it hasn't really managed to capture the zeitgeist quite like ChatGPT3 has, which is people can go to gpt type stuff in, and they get what is a surprising answer, or at least the human perception of a surprising answer. So the prognosticators and the analysts and the pundits have all come out of the woodwork making all sorts of promises, some bloviated and, and just hysterical, and some much more reasoned and pessimistic. And I thought what we would do is try and Take on the questions and point to trends and and what we are seeing. See what we can bring to light that might be as helpful to the people that are, that are listening.
1: With with that, I think I, I entitled this idea for enterprise technologists: Is Chat GPT coming for
2: your job? Let me just and give you so an answer. Cut, the answer is yes. Yes, I was going to say to cut to the chase. Oh, yes, yes, but, yes, yeah. but. Yeah. right. So.
1: Yes, all those parts of your job that are mundane and involve cutting and pasting from A to B just got shot. Now that has some downsides, which I'll let Greg articulate because he actually came up with some of them.
2: If ChatGPT is coming for your job, automation was already coming for it. And it's not going to happen today or in two years time. But in five to 10 years, I think these types of AI, and I'll explain how vendor-specific AI in technology terms, which is where we're focused, can and probably will come for you over time. But let's start off with a bit of a, a concept of a, a bit of an introduction to how chat GPT works, because having a, a loose interpretation of this is very important to understanding what the technology can do to you. And I'm going to refer heavily here to a uh, a long, very long, 90-minute reading post from Stephen Wolfram, who is the founder of Wolfram, uh, which is a computational scientist. He's very famous for being incredibly smart, but also a very good educator. And I would strongly recommend you go out there and read this because it's very technical, very in-depth. And a lot of my understanding of ChatGPT comes from this article, as well as a wide range of other sources which I've tried to capture here. But and this is the
1: article, What is Chat ChatGPT doing and why does it work? Yes. Which I just wanted to mention because even though you can go out and find it yourself, it's, it's actually a great provocative title and it also answers the questions.
2: Wolfram does a great job of, as a teacher or as an educator, making it approachable to some extent, right? Now you will have to have a fairly solid long time that's a 90 minute read that page it's but it's solid so go with that so the basic idea here is that you capture a data set from somewhere uh, preferably a large data set and in the case of chat gpt we're talking i believe something in the order of 175 billion parameters or points of so they've gone out there collected books blog posts forums you know anything that's in the open domain that they can le- legally take and you know, we could mention that maybe some cases they've taken illegally, um, you know, certain things that have been regarded as copyright, which they've just kind of ignored because they scraped the web, basically. And then they fed that into an AI algorithm, which, of, which is of their creation. And this is called an LLM, a large language model. They do various things and analysis on this. You know, if you want to go into detail, they talk about uh, 175 billion parameters, hidden dimensions of 16K, sequence length of 4K, average tokens per response. The tokens are a signal of if I'm going to have a branch in in the tree, then I'll have 2,000 possible tokens. So it's actually taking a lot of chances. It generates 15 responses per user, 30 million daily active users today, and it's probably using a vast amount of resources. So we can talk about it uh, more in a minute the the general concept here is that once you've got a data pool you can run an ai algorithm across it and from that you can extract a model and then you can take this model and put a language interface into it and you can query the model so the ai algorithms extract some meaning and some patterns and whatever and then they put a language interpreter in front of it so that you can query the chat gpt model and say this is what i'm at query based ai is very different to conversation based ia AI as well. Remember we talked about uh, stable diffusion and midjourney which are diffusion apps uh, diffusing the diffusion algorithm for AI image generation and those are query based. So what do you do is you form up a prompt and you issue it in and you say you know I want to get a scientific sci-fi image with a spaceship in the 1970s style in bright colors and, and you come up with this prompt it's usually about 150 characters long and um, and it'll generate an image for you. Those are query-based or prompt-based AI. ChatGPT is a conversation AI. That is, you can actually ask a first question and then it'll come back to you and you can ask a second question and then you can ask a third question. And this is a real generational change in the whole idea. And that conversation is part of what I think sparks the anthropomorphic fascination that humans have with ChatGPT is it becomes more human-like. Instead of spitting out a a long prompt-based, you know, one-off, click a button, and there's an answer. Now it's very much you can have a dialogue and question it and things like that. And that's why I think people are anthropomorphizing or making ChatGPT appear to be human. If you're not very uh, aware of what's going on around you,
1: I think people started using ChatGPT as a shorthand for AI, and that's a problem. Yeah, because ChatGPT, in my head and in the head of its creator, the CEO of OpenAI is a proof of concept the idea is what if we took all the most cutting-edge ideas in ai and conversational ai and made it available to everybody on the internet so that we can show people how it will work so that a we will learn a lot of things from how people will use it that's their main motivation let's let's be clear but also what it does is it sparks people and it has people thinking oh what if i used it for this what if i used it for that you know the the short answer to is chat gpt coming f- for your job is no not chat gpt but some other ai will for sure yeah. well, and I, that's actually very important
2: chat gpt is a beta product as you said and it's free. So who's paying for it? It's a proof
1: of concept. I'd go, yeah. yeah, um, But why uh, is it
2: free? Why is it open? And the answer is you're the product. So they can get, yeah, yes. You are the
1: product. They want to get your usage patterns, your data, your, you know, all of that. That's the goal. Yes. They
2: can take take your queries that are all coming in and add them to the model generation, identify gaps, and then start putting teams of people into the gaps. It's worth briefly talking about it. I mean, the current, You know, ChatGPT is based on open source material, and that includes things like the Bible, the Quran, the Mahabharata, you know, the writings of Buddhist monks for the last 2000 years. You know, it's also based on various stuff that's in the public domain, old books from, you know, that are out of copyright and all that sort of stuff. So it's not necessarily going to be accurate because its source data isn't accurate. But the reason that it's out there is it's free. Now, if I'm running a company called OpenAI and the guy who runs it, Sam Altman, is a long-time VC startup specialist, he knows that he needs more funding to get this to run. Now, interesting aside here is that the rumor is that it costs them $150 every time they run the model. This is just such a large database, such a large, you know, collection of data to extract the model. There's so many points of data that they're extracting. It's, it's literally something like 100 million to 200 million, anyone's best guess, to generate that model and- at this point in time. Hey,
0: everybody. We're pausing the conversation to tell you about today's sponsor, Backbox. Backbox is a network automation platform that supports network and security devices from over 180 vendors. With Backbox, you can automate any task that you can perform manually on any network device. Backbox comes with thousands of pre-built automations and the ability to customize automations without the need for scripting. Intelligent, conditional automation streamlined tasks that once took several steps. For example, verifying available storage space on devices before beginning operating system upgrades. Built from the ground up as a multi-tenant solution with role-based administration and a REST API, Backbox is both powerful and scalable. And with their award-winning customer support, you're never on your own. Get a free evaluation copy at backbox.com slash packetpushers and find out for yourself why businesses and service providers worldwide trust Backbox to automate critical tasks on over 100,000 networks. Once again, that's backbox.com slash pushers.
1: And I want to highlight the fact that, you know, taking this whole thing and making it free highlights one of the core principles of digital transformation, which is the value of crowdsourcing, Mm -hmm. because they wouldn't be doing this, spending real money to get our input unless there was real value to our input greater Mm -hmm. than or equal to 150 million, uh, which there is. And that's- Yeah, like got 10 billion from Microsoft. Right. Investing well, yeah. In the company, right. Actually, so that's another way. Fairly, of, hey, 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 yeah. hey! Wait, Greg. Let's you know. Let's not post disinformation. Yeah. They have Microsoft made a commitment to to invest up to ten billion over yeah. time, and presumably they didn't say this and they refused to answer. But presumably there are milestones that need to be met along the way. Yes. Well, so it's not a, like they just handed them a check for ten billion dollars and no. said, "Have at it, boys."
2: But if you're at that stage of product development, you've now got enough money to you know. He would have included a couple of billion dollars of cash. They've got money. Oh, absolutely. You know, it's a profitable decision to open source, improve, and attract investors. So, but- and, and
1: I know you're going somewhere, Greg, and I yeah. want to hand the baton back to you, but I also want to highlight something, which is Microsoft's, one of their first steps was to embed um, ChatGPT into Bing. And I have to say, as one of the last remaining Bing users on the planet, uh, the effects are actually immediately noticeable. Mm-hmm. Bing as a search engine just surged over the efficacy, in my extremely subjective view, of mm-hmm. Google. It used to be that Bing wasn't quite as good as Google, but I used it because I didn't want to give Google all my information. Now it's like, actually, I'd rather Bing it because the the little synopsis that pops up ahead of all the links is actually as valuable as all the links, which is really interesting
2: given that this has happened in a matter of weeks. Now that's that's it's interesting mistake take. I hadn't looked at Bing because Bing... Is right. Nobody looks at a, Bing. Nobody uses a, I, Bing. I have a me. Microsoft problem, not a Bing problem. Anyway, so one of the things that we see it covered a lot in the mainstream media is that ChatGPT is often wrong. This is why we say it's beta. It's not finished. It's not actually fit for use for very much. And that is because its training data is based on open data, which is free data that can be scraped. Any data such as this has very little provenance. There's no guarantee say, for example, if you're scraping public forums or various places where people put comments on newspapers or whatever, the people there are often actively hostile to the idea of truth or fairness or societal norms. And it's been trained on that sort of material. And so the real problem that you have with ChatGPT is how do they make the data viable? How do they keep the data lake cleansed? And what they've been doing up until now is to hire cheap workers in Africa or other countries in low-cost destinations to cleanse and tag data. Again, is that actually quality data? You could argue one way or the other. I'm sure they've taken steps to no, do- you you know, No, you couldn't. No,
1: <laughs> you couldn't. Know. This is not quality data. And that's yeah. actually a huge point, which Greg, let me know when we're ready to talk about that because I have, I have some recommendations there. Mm. But yeah, it is not quality data. They've they've done their best to get data that doesn't actively suck. Yeah. That's about as, That's all we can say.
2: However, it proves the case. So you, know, right. you it's can't say that the chat GPT is not functional and it doesn't prove the idea of what's behind it. Let's leave that behind us because that's where ChatGPT opens up the discussion and that's the wedge. We I think we both agree that ChatGPT is free because you're the product, but it's wrong and it's got poor quality data, so you should expect low quality answers. Or more importantly, it shows the value of that there is a human value in detecting when the AI is wrong. Now the question I think we should focus on in heavy strategy is how do we productize AI, not ChatGPT, but AI in the light of what we now know from ChatGPT to enterprise IT? And that's the question that I'm sort of thinking. And you tag this as the first application, of course, is as a better search engine interface, which is it's an expensive way to improve search for, as Bing shows because the cost of a query in Bing is something like five times what it costs to do a normal search query in the usual ways. But, it- but yes, it is better.
1: Uh, and, and you know, one of the, what you go on to, to raise is, you know, if you're an IT, if you're an enterprise technologist, you can look at your job and say, how much of what I do involves either um, searching for information or answering people who are searching for information. So let's say your help desk, hmm. you know, you could potentially offload an enormous amount of what help desk is because essentially, you you and your team may have spent untold staff hours trying to build out um, help documentation that is intuitive. And the users are like, I can't figure out how to answer my question. Guess what? AI is going to help with that. I don't
2: know how to ask the right question to get an answer. Exactly.
1: That's where AI becomes incredibly valuable because it can really just collapse that
2: lack of understanding and get you the information you need in the space of a query or two. Because I was thinking in terms of Uh, Say like in an Apple application and you click on help and you say, I want to, you've got to know what terms to search for to find the relevant. If you want to create a footnote in my, in Apple pages, you need That's to know great, it's a footnote, but, You footnote, know. right? <laughs> you know, right? How do you explain the concept of a footnote if you don't know what a footnote is? As soon as you type the word footnote, it'll tell you this is the menu and away you go. <laughs> right, right. So, exactly. So I think the first obvious application in corporate IT or in business is you're going to see AI training on vendor manuals and resources and internal documentation and product documentation, plus a whole range of public information and educational material. And you'll be able to feed that into a model feed that into a data lake, and then generate a model that's trained on just that. And then you'll be able to have an AI interface to how to guides, what is a, how does a work. To some extent, this is actually probably going to replace some basic training.
1: I just wanna weigh in on this because you're you're touching on two different things. One is that the vendors themselves will be doing this, but the other point is if you are an IT person who is touching on things like user experience, employee experience, Mm. Uh, you're going to want to think about investing in AI to make your user experience more seamless and effective by integrating all those vendor how-do-wise and everything Mm. else. So whether it's internally for training your folks how to configure a router or externally helping your customers, you, you can have one in the same basic platform up in place. So if the question is gee i don't think i need to invest in ai because our business or you know mm. doesn't really do anything that's ai related you're wrong if, yeah if you're big enough your technology infrastructure is complex enough you're going to need it and yeah, you're yeah. going to need it to support your customers this is something that employers. comes out a lot
2: is a lot of people are prognosticating that one of the first things that should that sort of changed my perspective was listening to vcs talk and they're saying there is no moat around ai that is right. there's not going to be a facebook or a google of ai who masters all of it and everybody get, uses the same product everywhere. The point here is that because you have to build a data lake and then you have to train a model, and so the value is in the quality of the data, and even the data is not particularly useful.
1: Well, uh, and, and I will come back to the data, yeah. but I just want to highlight that sort of, broadly speaking, regardless of what industry you're, you're in, if you operate a help desk, if you, if there is any form of helping people figure out how to do stuff, you must be investing in AI. Yeah. That said, quite a number of industries are going to be investing in AI for their core business functions and this gets yes. to the data issue mm. which is the next big milestone that you want to pay really close attention to is not so much oh what happens with chat GPT that's open to everybody and has crappy data mm what happens when there's an offering that's enterprise ready that allows the enterprises to source the data and verify the clean, the, the cleanliness of the data. And the example is, let's say you're a law firm. Yeah. You've been operating for 150 years and you're kind of behind the times on technology like most law firms are. <laughs> uh, but if you have an enormous amount of case information because you've been operating for 150 years, you can feed that into your own private AI and make that available to your lawyers and legal analysts that gives you a competitive advantage over a yes. a law firm that may have the best and brightest hotshots, but it's only been in business for five years and doesn't have access to that yeah. data. Because of when you go in court, point... the
2: lawyer goes in and says, I'm going right. to pick from, you know, I have 10 possible ways to attack this case. I'm right. going to choose these, choose these three or whatever. The, these I judge right. to be. You want to have but access the, to the next time you come around to that analysis of all ten.
1: But the point here is that what it does, what AI does, is is it's game changing in favor of organizations that have sources of reliable data. Hmm. So if you think of, so, that that actually preferences older companies, companies that maybe predate all this digital transformation stuff, but have a reliable set of data yeah. that they can feed into it. Keep in mind that this is presupposing something that doesn't quite exist yet, although Microsoft is tap dancing around the edges, which is this idea of an of a an entirely private AI. That you can control 100% in terms of the data yeah. that you feed it. it they say they see... make it available on Azure, but I don't trust their. The, I, I yeah. don't trust that, and the, and the details are maddeningly vague, as they say.
2: I mean, the obvious extension here is that well, why don't you just put an AI on your help desk? But that's not going to work because it doesn't include your business data. In right. the, it's just going to include what's in the help desk app. This is why right. corporate companies are going to have their own AI. And because you need to be bringing in all of your quality assurance documentation as training material, you're going to need to bring in all of your customer correspondence. You're going to need to bring in your accounting data so that you can you know, understand patterns in buying from customers so that you can come in and then you can say, well, if this help desk query relates to a sale and this is something that we've been trying to do for a very long time is to bring these data data lakes together in some way but this is ai is a much more or would appear to be a much more practical way to achieve that at this point in time but and also those models are very cheap to train so when you're doing tech support ais or corporate support ais there are only limited amounts of data you're talking 20 million 50 million data points you're not talking 175 billion And so you're talking like 250,000 Five hundred thousand to generate the model, and the ROI is really there. And then, of course, because your accuracy is high, then you probably the data is valid because it's all inside the company. Your risk of failure is going low every company will do build their own ai at some level over time and we'll
1: if you've been listening to us throw words at you because we're so excited i think there's a a handful of takeaways from the the discussion thus far you know one is that there are at least two use cases for ai in in every organization one is internal for the help desk and the other one is as part of whatever your core business is that's thing one thing two is that it's what greg just said it's not a simplistic case of go buy an AI, flip the switch, and turn it on. You really have to do some heavy lifting, thinking about what data sources are getting fed in and how, keeping in mind, particularly for the aspect of AI that is core to the business, that that can become your competitive differentiator. So you want to yeah. you want to balance the broad scope of getting new and interesting and innovative data, but you want to make sure that it's actually super valid. So there's okay. the you know to, in shorthand, there's the help desk AI and there's the legal firm AI, and they're two different use cases, but they're both important.
2: Now that is a support AI function, as I see it. The next one that I see is a, an operational AI. And let me try and explain this. There are data feeds from customer systems that are being fed up to vendor lakes, or data lakes. The collected data that is then fed into generate a model, and the model then identifies problems, issues, and signals about around this system. So it could be network flow data, it could be compute logs, it could be... And the example that I'll give here is there's a company here who just happened to email me in the last 48 hours called Logpoint, and they're saying makes chat GPT integration with their SOAR security tool, right? So basically, yeah, you you really do not want to integrate your SOAR with ChatGPT,
1: but it is right. a good idea. It is uh, a good philosophically. idea philosophically. Yeah, yeah.
2: So basically, the the pitch goes on to say that this ChatGPT integration with LogPoint SOAR. Soar, uh, soar. They, they sore. all call it soar. Soar, okay. Yeah. So short, readable executive summaries. A soar playbook can feed lengthy compliance report text to chat GBT to create an executive summary of the main findings and remedian recommendations that's easy to read for executives. Well, we all know executives are stupid and generally incompetent. That's what you want because you know writing that report is probably not going to get read anyway. Auto-generated could be quite useful. And then another one they point, they flag is believable awareness training they believe that a ChatGPT integration can automate part of the awareness training. It automatically generates phishing emails and saw playbook extracts data from <laughs> LinkedIn <and laughs> enriches it. So this is, you know, blah, blah, growl, blah. Growl,
1: growl. I'm just growling on that because um, because companies have been using AI for that for a while. It just doesn't happen to be ChatGPT
2: AI, no. but that's okay. But you get the that's idea, okay. right? The idea here is that well, you can take an AI. Yeah. I'm not, I, I think the use of ChatGPT yeah. is just, Okay. Insane, can,
1: but yes. You, you know, but still, the, you can take an the AI. Way. Yeah. It's an AI. Yeah.
2: And in this case, what they're doing is just looking at log data. They're generating executive summaries from the reports that the system currently generates great okay so if you take this a step further uh, in networking which is where i'm more expected juniper has been collecting data from customers networks for the past five years cisco meraki same everything's in the cloud and they can now run an ai across this with various algorithms and they can start to look for signals in the network that there are operational concerns going on and they can now start to say to customers we see a problem here there's an interface over here that's throwing a high level of errors we strongly recommend you go and replace that SFP. And in fact, we've already shipped you the SFP. It'll be with you tomorrow.
1: We've been talking about this for years, but we've been talking in the form of predictive analytics and being Mm -hmm. able to say there's going to be a problem for which we have just given you the solution, which we're already doing in a lot of very sophisticated networks today, also using AI. But it's worth noting that this trend is just going to accelerate. So I don't want to I don't want to act like this is suddenly something yeah. brand new thanks to you know December 2022 and ChatGPT, but it does flag people can mm-hmm. now understand how something might go to work to do that, which it's already doing, but it's just yes. going to do more
2: of it. And they even have tools that feed data back into it, Paragon, like Juniper has Paragon Assurance mm-hmm. and so forth, right. uh, where they basically collect data actively in the model to feed into the signals for the AI model. And the interesting mm-hmm. part about this, and this is something that a lot of people don't think have realized, is the data is collected from customers Vendors then analyze it and then sell the outcomes of that back to customers as an AI service, right? So their right. AI model is actually that's- sold back
1: and just to highlight that and sorry i keep beating this drum but it's important there are the you know we talked previously on another show about the eight pillars of digital transformation and you know one of them is data has value so if you're able to extract data from your customers and sell it back to your customers <laughs> it can ultimately in the long run have more value than whatever it is you sold this is to create the customer in the first place now
2: weirdly subscription revenue will work for this because you need to keep right. there's the data yes. increases you need to run the models And you want to have newer and fresher models that get better and better over time as your algorithms improve. And in theory, the tools that you use to comb through the data and validate it. Uh, The second type of AI that I think we'll see in technology is configuration AI. This is where visibility tools go out there and provide signals. I think for con- this is the third, because we've, yeah. oh, we've got support. We've got
1: support, operational, and now we're at configuration. We've got one more to talk about, yeah. and then we go back into the broader. So go yeah. ahead. Third. So visibility
2: tools will provide signals for configuration changes today. So what we'll do is train models based on customer configuration information. Your networks, your computers, you know, what is this is running Windows, this is running Linux, this application is configured with these parameters, your SQL database is running at this performance, but now I've got its configuration and you know, all these different things together. Um, So now I can take all that up, train models based on all the customer systems, and I can converge on a best practice that works across. But what I can also work on is non-best practices and identify why this customer should have a deviation from the norm, which is, of course, the art of a sales engineer today. Uh, And then you so you combine that data coming in from customers you combine it with internal vendor teams help desk feedback product managers product manuals you know learning experiences from various and certify the data set and then you sell the model back to customers as a proactive ai that's already happening today uh, in the wi-fi space particularly and the campus land space and i expect to see it arrive in the SD-WAN very soon that's not that's already here to some extent so
1: before you go on to the next one, I'm just gonna summarize again because it's worth mm. it's worth thinking about that we're talking about tech support generally broadly.
2: Yeah.
1: Um there is also the inside the business component, which yeah. is separate, but inside yeah. tech, there's tech support, there's operational AI, there's configuration AI, and next last but not least, there's the whole threat to developers.
2: The threat to developers is very interesting because I think there's two threats. One is a threat to developers, mm-hmm. and then there's a threat to white-collar workers more generally.
1: Well, let, let's hold but off on, on that because I have a few things to say to that. But right. but let's talk about developers explicitly because you raise a yeah. bunch of interesting so points. Here.
2: What we're seeing at the moment is a big windback in developers or employment at tech companies. And a lot of that are, are, is partly because um, the tools that you use to create work is now very easy so when we talk about CICD five years ago that was like a mystical magic incantation or when we talk about uh, frameworks of various sorts they required extra developers to put them together and to some extent we're reaching into a period of technology of IT technology, if you like, not even the widened technology where we've been through a massive transition over the last decade and things are slowing. The amount of change that we've gone through, the change in languages and practices and the move away from hosted to virtualization to containerized to off-prem and on-prem we now have to have a period of consolidation. And that's the way IT has always worked. My theory has always been that they go through a period of punctuated equilibrium. There's a a period of massive change. It lasts five to eight years, and then people spend the next 10 to 15 years digesting it. So for example, in late 1990s, massive expansion of the online, the Internet, and then somewhere in the early 2000s, it stagnated right the way up until 2012, 2015. And then there's been a big burst of change for a very sustained period. And now I think we're going to see companies say, okay, well, you've got all this new technology, you have to give us value for money. We can't just keep rewriting apps in Rust because you think it's better. What we're seeing now is the rise of low code or no code. We're seeing the rise of GUIs. We're seeing the rise of automated C I D CI/CD pipelines. You're seeing code validation done automatically. That's another area where AI is going to look at and say, "Is this code insecure? Is this code gone? well?" You know? and,
1: and and I just want to raise the point that you know you, you you cast all this in the in the context of threat for developers, and you talk mm-hmm. about how you know basically we have. We have a a problem in the market right now where there's people running around commanding hundreds of thousands of dollars in salary that essentially aren't worth it. Sorry, guys, but you <laughs> aren't no. because you're you're doing cutting and pasting. I mean, be honest, you know what you're doing. You get online, you go, oh, I need to solve this problem. Is there a run- routine that does this? Yeah, I just found it. Go I plugged on, it in, rest it all up. Stuff, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and you know what I would suggest is you need to take a a long hard look at lo- the longshoreman industry because back in the day. Uh, it was a sure job to be a longshoreman. The union was a was a wonderful place to be because you and your big strong back was carrying boxes on and off the boats. We replaced all that with robotics. It's still a fantastic job, but only for a handful of skilled robotics guys oh. who are who are actually operating, you know, operating the um, yep. container hoists and things like that. And so I'm not saying that programming is a bad place to go, but. There's almost a signal in the market where when everybody decides to jump on something, example, back in the 1990s, my boss, the CEO, wanted to give every engineer who completed the CCIE uh, a BMW, and I said, Mm. Joe, that's a terrible idea, because in five years, getting a CCIE is going to be worth nothing, and we're going to be sucking people into this pipeline from other fields where we might need them, like security. Once again, we're here running around saying, everybody should learn to code. You know, a grade schooler should learn to code. It's a safe job. Everybody should do it. You know, Mm -hmm. stem for minorities, stem for women, and then it all translates to learn to code. Here's a hint. Don't learn to code. It's a bad idea, (laughs) unless you really love computer science. Yeah,
2: I think the point here is that if you're going to use an AI and be able to write intelligent queries and interact with it, knowing how to code will be valuable. Having solid thought linking processes? I, and... I,
1: I disagree. The yeah, whole I point might... of, I, I completely disagree. The whole point of AI is you don't need to know the stuff behind yeah. the curtain. Oh, so well, and eventually that would be true. if you're just writing standard code, yeah. if you're just, yeah, eventually yeah. in like three years, if you're just no, writing no, standard code, longer. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, 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 this is this is not, no, yeah. this they're already using chat GPT, which is crappy, to generate hmm. equally crappy code. But guess what? Most code is crappy. Yeah, that's we true. have an yeah. army of mediocre programmers out there. Don't be one of them. Yeah. If you want to be somebody who is a world-class computer scientist, that's a whole different story. Then you have to mm. know, you know, as I was talking to Greg earlier, what's the difference between NP-complete and NP-hard, yeah. right? And what's the, what's the mathematics yes. that you can
2: use to generate, you know, exactly. and selecting the most that, efficient algorithm sure. because of the math? Exactly. Sure. We'll to come to that in a minute because there's actually an interesting discussion to be had there.
1: Okay, go ahead. So I
2: just wanted to go back to developers. Like, at the end of the day, developers is – Writing code is an infinitely fractal activity. You've got to balance the business activity with changing requirements. You've got ever-varying frameworks. You've got ever more IDEs, CICD pipelines, and there's competition and so forth. It's expensive in every dimension. It's just intractable to self. This is what we're finding is a lot of these companies are saying, like, why have I got this many developers and what are they doing? I don't understand what they're doing. And as we saw in an interesting (laughs) use cases, like at Twitter... Uh, where they I cut knew the, where you were going on that one. <laughs> you know, they cut the business in half and then even further down and the product has suffered, but not catastrophically so, which is an interesting lesson to learn. I wouldn't want to work there still, but I and I wouldn't want to work in, in that you know, in that environment. Well, and that's and that's that's
1: really the... where Elon Musk was going. I, I fault him on lots of fronts, but where he was going with this is show me what code you've written that has value. And the underlying hypothesis is at least half of you aren't generating code with value. Yeah. Now, side note: I think the value of the code is bullshit. Excuse me, in mm. the concept of Twitter, uh, and he should have been asking the question: How are we selling eyeballs to advertisers? Because that's how we make money. Yeah. Uh, but he's not really that smart. So he just went for the basic, the low hanging fruit of, I'm very confident that half, at least half my so-called coders aren't really writing meaningful code.
2: And, and so far it would seem to have proven out. Now there's plenty of problems with it. And, and it hasn't been a seamless experience. It wasn't like it was perfect, but it was certainly better than the alternative, which was to have three, you know, 3,750 People on the pay- payroll. So anyway, well, I, would, I, think- I would
1: disagree, but yeah. that's a, that's a whole different story because the question is, what were they doing? And if if mm. a large number of them were involved in the actual business problem here, then letting them go was a terrible idea. Which yeah, that's is what right. I think yeah,
2: I think at the end of the day, the discussions that I'm seeing in certain conf- things is that. You can replace developers with platform skills at some point. There are low code, no code tools that you don't need a custom developer for, where, you know, and we're seeing this emerge in the industry today. There's all manner, like VMware is a low code platform to just orchestrate hypervisors. Or to orchestrate some stories. You should
1: not, yes, this this is not. You would not go and write
2: that app yourself. You would absolutely use the low-code, no-code platform to do that, yeah.
1: And Greg, I have to keep thinking, you know, I I keep converting everything in my life to music. There's a really wonderful Jonathan Colton song called Code Monkey, which most of you are probably familiar with. Contains the line, maybe manager want to write goddamn login script himself. Uh, and every time I listen to the song, I still keep thinking, why were you writing a login script, Jonathan Colton? That is like the most <laughs> useless use of programming time. <laughs> and so, the, so, if that's what you're doing, guess what? Mm-hmm. Uh, AI just took that over for you.
2: Yes. So, let's talk about the threat to white collar workers. This is a much more interesting discussion. There are a lot of parallels to when factories came along in the early 1900s and the impact on blue collar workers we're actually seeing the same thing play out in white collar workers. And I think it's absolutely, there will be a difference, a change. It's not if, it's a question of when and where. Of course, like any change, there are parts that aren't changed, jobs that aren't changed and some that are. But I think most people can agree that there's many white collar work activities that could be replaced with automation. However, the skills like that, To do programming or scripting are not widely distributed and there's little demand in most people's jobs to actually do them or learn them you don't see people saying i'm going to learn how to do microsoft Excel scripting as a widespread skill it's usually just a few excel power users that go out and learn how to really make excel do stuff like consider there are people out there who can use excel to do an extract data from a back end and then transform it and then load it into a spreadsheet and then do a report generation. You don't need a developer for that. You just need somebody who's got some modest white color skills to be able to do that. My prediction here would be that we would expect to see AI as part of the accounting product that will able to do that. It'll just say here, type here and we'll extract this data that you want. You want to see all customers for this zone with this and you want to see this type of report. Click a button. It'll automatically eject an XLS and it'll be done for you. That's and that's well. There are whole people's and, jobs gone right there and then. So
1: yeah, and I just want to highlight the whole the whole white collar worker. Since both Greg and I are white collar workers, as well as being IT people, but in in essence, if you're a white collar worker. You don't run around saying this, but you your your internal self-definition is, I get paid to think. Now, you may be an accountant who's paid to think about accounting. You may be a salesperson who's paid to think about, you know, how to apply your product or solution to the customer. But at the end of the day, you're not, you know, picking up a shovel and doing something. Hmm. You're thinking. Uh, and what, what the advent of AI is forcing you to do is think about the degree to which you're thinking about mundane and stupid and mediocre things. And if Mm. you're honest, no matter how smart you are, that's probably 60 to 70% of your job. And for most people, it's more like 90 to 95. And the problem with that is if you are wedded to the idea that your thinking is so special and unique that nobody else can do it for you, then you're in for a world of hurt. And I'll use myself as an example. I'm an yep. analyst. Talk about being paid to think at the at the pinnacle. <laughs> That's right. yep. You know, look, chat GPT does even bad, crappy chat GPT does what most analysts do better than most analysts do them. So yes. I have to be constantly challenging myself. Am I adding any meaningful value here or not? And if I'm not, I've got to just don't fight automation give it up go find another place yes or which wait for the disruption to, to come and yeah, take you out which yeah. brings which brings me to the point where mm. are we going to see value continued and my mm. answer for several you know for over a decade has been curation and deploying an aesthetic and human sense and yeah. even with ai Curation is huge. Curation as a job, which is looking at things, curation in a nutshell is looking at things and going, this matters, this doesn't. Or at another level, this matters for this reason, this doesn't for this other reason. Data for data's sake doesn't actually
2: help you with the result. And
1: and AI will eventually start climbing up that curation, that curation hierarchy, so to speak. But right now it's not that good. Even the AI generated art, you know, generally you can look at it and say, nah, it's good. It's not great. And so what we're going to see is a generation of people who are highly skilled at curation. You know, you think about the, the general function of knowledge workers is either to create or to edit. It's going to swing the pendulum he- heavily towards people who are able to edit well and away from people who create mediocrely.
2: People who just put stuff, you know, run a report that was right. generated by like, somebody else because right. it takes... Great
1: creators, two, yeah. great Two days to generate AI that report,
2: not, to get the data out, transform it, validate yeah. it, you know, whatever.
1: AI it, is not going to take over... is is not going to take over great thinking, but it will take over the vast majority of mediocre thinking.
2: So my concern here is there's a skills gap that's going to, because you're talking about a high value expert skill. And usually that's one that's trained in the field on knowledge, right? And experience and doing stuff. If you hollow out the entry level and the mid-career skills like this, where do the people emerge from?
1: I'm going to push back on you because mm-hmm. we've so violently agreed on everything that I've really been just just playing color commentary and mm. in, syn- in synopsizing what you've been saying to this point. Yeah, I- I'm going to argue, though, if you think about switching to curation. People can actually learn about a subject by curating that subject, and they don't necessarily need to know all the back end that went into it. As a case in point, you know, no programmer really understands chip design because uh, some some chip designer figured that out. I don't actually need to know how the electrons or the quanta are shifting. It doesn't matter. I just need to know how to use it. And I think curation is going to be a very different career path than learning to do it the nuts and bolts way. You know, it's it's kind of like going back to my longshoreman example. It doesn't really help. Learning to pick up heavy chairs and chairs mm. and furniture is not super helpful in learning how to operate a crane that lifts up, you know, mm. containers. They're just two different
2: sets of skills. But I do wonder how we get skills, you know, advanced cognition, advanced experience and and knowing that this this data is not right or wrong. Um, it's something we already face in infrastructure technology as people have moved out of infrastructure technology it's much harder for people to jump the gap from help desk roles to senior roles because there's that you know we used to have a lot of people it used to be a bell curve and the people in the middle were all doing the work that bell curve now is very flat it's much less people to pick on there's a much smaller pool to pick from to get the best, sort of thing. So I do I do think there's an issue there that we haven't really thought of.
1: I think I think it definitely changes the career path. I don't think you know, and I think it's worth you raised a good issue. I just don't think it's quite as insoluble
2: as you imply. Yeah, I, I suspect just... it will get solved because it has to.
1: It's really the difference between computer engineering and computer science. Back in the day when I studied it, you actually had to know how transistors work before they let you study computer science. These mm. days, it's irrelevant, and and yeah. as it should be.
2: So, let's wrap up with some conclusions. First of all, I think the obvious conclusion is AI is here to stay. Its ability to capture the mainstream or to capture people's attention via chat GPT. Up until now, we've been able to sort of ignore it and treat it like a feature, not a product. We've seen technology vendors say, we've got AI, and we're sort of going like, yeah, yeah, sure, sure, sure. No, it's coming, but it's not. I think the whole chat GPT thing has really brought it to the forefront. Would you agree?
1: Yeah, I, th- I think the first conclusion is chat GPT in is indicates that AI is here.
2: It's here to stay, and it's not here to use, right? You're not going right. to run out and deploy this now, but this, the, effectively the... It's now a matter of time until we see these tools used inside of companies. We're only interested in the corporate sense here. Um, I still do have a lot of concerns about the morals and ethics and values that go into the AI. Mm. And now this includes business as well, because we we see a lot of businesses adopting uh, ESG, environmental and sustainability goals. I think that your AI is going to have to be trained along the same lines as those ethics. If you want to If your AI suddenly just starts spitting out criminal suggestions, uh, that would be bad. Um,
1: And I'll I'll just highlight that the buzzword for this is digital ethics. And mm. my cutting edge clients have been talking about it for at least five years. Mm. The question is, you as an organization need a, a very critical sit down to talk about what your ethics are and how that's going to apply in a world with AI. So most people take digital ethics and go, oh, well, what does that mean about customer privacy? Well, that's a tiny little subset of digital ethics. (laughs) The bigger question is how do we codify uh, in our own brains what we are allowed to do and not allowed to do as an organization? And then the next step is how do we use that to train and curate our
2: AIs? I'm really interested to hear what happens to insurance because insurance is based on Existing data, so the actuaries sit down and say, "Well, in a, in this number of toolset, you know, this set of data, we can see this is the risk. So we need to get this much money out of a pool to ensure this risk yep. and make a reason."
1: No, no surprise. The uh, the the person who first mentioned digital ethics to me was a CISO at an insurance company, and this was years ago. Yeah, they know very well because the basically what Greg's getting at is today you know, we all have some probabilistic chance of getting cancer. Tomorrow, they're going to be able to walk up to me and go, John, you will get cancer at age, you know, 72 and a half. So your insurance policy just tripled, right? right. And that's that's the kind of thing where it's like, are they allowed to do that? Should they be allowed to do that? Does the entire business model take a nosedive? Yes,
2: that's right. So there are questions here. And, And the theosophical question that I posted myself here is, do you want an AI trained on the Bible, the Quran and the Mahabharata for psychological or personal evaluation? Do you really want to be evaluated according to an AI uh, that's trained on those? I actually I,
1: I actually wouldn't mind that as long as you have the guardrails uh, in, in place. In other mm. words, if it's the only source of, of information and it's presented as the oracle on the hill, then no. Mm. But if somebody comes back and says, you sit down and say, oh, my gosh, I'm feeling suicidal. Talk to me about why I should live. And it comes back and says, well, according to the Quran, here's a thought. You know what? There's no... There's no understanding what's going to capture the human information as long as it's properly sourced and not positioned as this is the answer. Hey, maybe what a therapist would say would help, but maybe knowing that the ancients thought about it and had some solutions too. you know, I mean, how often do we quote? There's no answer to this.
2: It's literally like it's a meta question, you know. Do you yep. want to include religious texts in a psychosocial evaluation program? I, I I don't have an answer. It's not my area of expertise, but it's a question to ask that. And there's uh,
1: well, you you can you can answer it with with mm. uh, preferences as I did here. Mm. Um, but but you know, I think I think it's actually important as long as you source and position the findings in the right context. And this gets mm. back to the whole point that you were making earlier, mm. Greg, which is really about what is the context in which the data is being ingested? In what context is it being presented as true or valid data? And that's going to be an ongoing challenge for yeah. decades.
2: Another conclusion that I've put together here is it's expensive to create and regenerate those models. So collecting the data and then generating the models. We talk, you know, could be millions, could be tens of millions, depending on the size of the data models. It could be quite small and low cost. Some people are actually just doing them on their their laptops right now, feeding in every email they ever wrote and every document they ever wrote or every blog post they ever wrote to be able to generate uh, an AI that would actually write for you. The interesting part about this is that it actually sets up a a play for subscription models where you do actually want to get new models on a regular basis. So ChatGPT 3.5 is a regenerated model based on Cleansing of the original data, and then they rerun the algorithms with some sort of tuning and our el- enhancement. And the interesting thing here is that the sub- transition to subscription revenue actually supports that model. You do and- probably, if you're buying it from a third party, that is, yes
1: yeah and i will highlight again that subscription economy is one of the eight pillars of digital transformation mm-hmm. i'll also sort of wrap up with a quick anecdote because you know I, we started this by saying ChatGPT gpt is a proof of concept it is not a tool you should use however there are some uses for it and the other day i had to create a uh in, in a hurry i had to create a powerpoint presentation for a webinar and I thought to myself, I need I need a definition of a topic that is semantically correct but uses a lot of nonsense words and essentially has zero information content. Normally, I would have Googled what is topic. This time, I fed it to ChatGPT, and I got exactly what I wanted. I got something like 250 words n- of very, very low information content, which is what I was looking for because I wanted to illustrate the fact that most definitions of this topic are useless and pointless and, and buzzwords. And chat GPT came through like a champ.
2: <laughs> and that can happen. I think we'll see a lot of, you know, imagine using an AI to do your end of month report, you know, <laughs> which is generally a useless activity in most cases anyway. One last thing um, that I thought I'd just draw to is the fact that who owns your data set, who owns your model, So you need to be careful about which AI you buy, because if you're sending your data off to a third party and they're sending it back to you, I think there's a political issue or a a transaction issue that's not yet surfaced in corporates. So if, you know, suddenly all of your accounting data is off outside and they're selling it back to you, is it your data? Is it their data? Is the model? I think there's a conflict that's going to happen there at some point. That I and I think that's understand. that's
1: part, part of the digital ethics and part of the bigger issue, which is if yep. you've been listening to us all along, um, you got a little tutorial on AI, which is good, uh, and ChatGPT's role within AI. But the biggest thing to come away with is this notion that it's all about the data, that it's all about whether the data can be verified, trusted, in what context it can be trusted, who owns it, how it's protected, how the conclusions that are drawn from the data is are handled. But at the end of the day, it's all about the data. Yeah. So you really want to be thinking about your data sources mm-hmm. and what you do and don't include, who owns it, how you protect it, all that stuff. If you're thinking about AI at all, that's the, the corollary.
2: Yeah, and that I think is probably just a first take. I, I suspect we'll be talking about this more in the future. There's so many questions that we can't answer because it's just too early in the cycle. But I wanted to, in this, at least with this, when you brought up the topic, I thought there's just a few things that are obvious to me at this point in time that I think we can draw solid solid. Questions and say, I don't think we have all the answers, but we can have a stab at what are the issues. So unanswered questions, exactly. You know, questioned exactly. answers. We don't have unquestioned
1: uh, questions. Exactly. Unanswered. And and by not by not addressing uh, by not addressing AI, we would have been having some implicit uh, unquestioned answers, and that's not a good thing. So we'd no. rather raise the questions.
2: On that note, thanks so much for listening to Heavy Strategy. Thanks very much to Jonah for coming on today. If you want to hear more from her, head on over to community.nemerdes.com. That's N E M E R. T-e-s.com. That's where Jonah works. She's got her social community. If you just click on that link and ask to be a member, she'll sign you up straight away and get you in on the community that they're building there. And I'm Greg Farrow. You can find me on Twitter at Ethereal Mind. Uh, if you've got any feedback for us, uh, head on over to packetpushes.net slash fu. There's a form there where you can just fill it out. You could be anonymous. We don't want to know who you are. We don't want to capture your personal details. Just tell us, uh, positive or negative. And uh, if there's anything that we've said that's wrong or you want to argue with, we will immediately carry it over to the next show so that we can make sure that we're providing solid information and including other people's points of view. And finally, if you've ever wanted to come on the show and argue with, I mean, debate, I mean, to join in the conversation, by all (laughs) means, uh, head on over to packetpushes.net slash fu again, and just tell us why we would want to get out, reach out to you and what topics you'd like to have uh, discussed with us. We'd love to have you on the show. Thanks very much for listening. We'll see you in a couple of weeks. Sorry, I
1: recording you out stopped with
2: that outro there. I apologize.
0: No, no worries. I-